Welcome to Explain to Shane. I'm your host, Shane Tews at the American Enterprise Institute. On this podcast, I interview tech industry experts to explain how the apps, services, and structures of today's information technology system work and how they shape our social and economic life. Modularity is a co-regulatory approach for multi-stakeholder, multi-jurisdictional platform governance that has been used by the financial and insurance industries for years to create a common set of guidance principles. My guest today will discuss how using a modular process is a good practical application for sharing data across platforms and systems as a way to manage a global internet with local laws, using common cross-border building blocks to achieve common regulatory goals. Susan Ness is today's guest on Explain to Shane. Susan was appointed to the Federal Communications Commission by President Clinton in 1994. She chaired the federal-state joint board that was charged with addressing universal telecommunications service issues, and she served as the FCC's senior representative at the 1995, 1997, and 2000 World Radio Communications Conference. Commissioner Ness was known for her promotion of rules to advance competition domestically and globally that helped spur new technologies and services expand economic opportunities, eliminate unnecessary regulation, and reduce regulatory uncertainty. She played a key role in shaping policies for efficient management of radio spectrum to help forge agreements in the digital television standards. Join me and Susan as we discuss reducing internet fragmentation with a common system that works for multiple stakeholders that include government, industry, civil society, and consumers to create a common cross-border system for regulatory guidance across the globe. Susan, thank you so much for being a guest today on Explain to Shane. It was great having you at an event at AI a couple of weeks ago, and you started to talk about this, and I thought, that sounds really interesting, and I cannot wait to learn more. So modularity, this is such a great idea, and I'm so glad that you are one of the people that are moving the ball forward, but let's let's break this down. What is this modularity that you're working on? Thank you, first of all, Shane, for including me on this wonderful podcast. I'm a big fan. Oh, thank you. Um, But modularity actually is quite simple. It's a co-regulatory approach to internet platform governance. It helps to align democracies despite having different legal systems, different regulatory horizons, and different societal norms. As you know, there's a disconnect between the internet, which is global, and the laws that regulate it, which are local. As you know, the problems online are largely the same worldwide. Hate speech, harassment, privacy, sexual exploitation of children, data access, and yet the rules combating these problems are local. Freedom House, I believe, identified more than 48 countries that were trying to regulate online services. So as you can imagine, it's a cacophony of regulatory morass. So uh, we are watching the advent of the Digital Services Act about ready to come in live, which is exceptionally confusing. And I think that that is the thing I have most in mind when you Mm -hmm. uh, talk about this is you've got the DSA, the Digital Service Act, the the, um, DMA, Digital Markets Act over at the um, European Union, as well as parallel worlds as we're watching with having to get used to the UK being their own entity again. Uh, Australia having some things to say about this, as well as our own government looking at what to do about the platforms. And as someone who tries to make sense of a lot of that from the regulatory perspective, this idea of having 
kind of um, what you talk about was like, you know, we have these different legal systems, but yet we're looking for basically very similar outcomes in a, the case of a lot of these regulatory entities. So explain how the structure comes together and then who are the decision makers in this? Because it sounds like you are going beyond government and you are using our favorite multi-stakeholder in the internet governance space uh, word here. Action modularity is really a regulatory philosophy that privileges multi-stakeholder and multinational collaboration. So regulators in multiple countries working in partnership with both civil society and industry, they would recognize these common cross-border systems or codes as essentially fulfilling specific functions under their respective regulatory frameworks. These are modules. They're building blocks or Legos for Europeans, um, a part of a regulatory framework. Think of it as filling in a sandwich. It's the middle layer between multiple regulatory frameworks on top, such as the, as you were pointing out, the EU's Digital Service Act or the UK's Online Safety Bill, and government enforcement of the rules on the bottom. We don't want to take government enforcement away. They have many uses. They could be organized to draft and oversee cross-border codes of conduct or draft minimum standards and protocols for independent auditors that are seeking to review a platform's risk assessments. Or they could be draft standards uh, operating on a cross-border system for vetting researchers and research projects that are seeking to access platform data. They can also be updated more rapidly than regulation um, as the digital ecosystem evolves. So that is basically the, the way that we go about it. Um, it makes little sense for democracies to operate multiple systems to carry out the same function, such as vetting researchers. It's a waste of limited regulatory resources. It's likely to cause confusion for industry uh, and for users, and compliance is going to be really difficult for online services that are small and don't have resources. You asked about how it would be structured, who would structure it. Um, you basically would get together with governments or regulators and multi-stakeholders to identify specific requirements in these laws that could be common. Um, and the more routine these tasks are, the more likely they're gonna work as modules. Chances are that stakeholders are already hard at work on these issues. Over the past decade, we've seen a multitude of civil society groups, as well as industry groups that have been formed to find workable solutions to these problems. We all recognize legislation is on the horizon, and that's a great motivating force. Their work of these groups that's already in place could become the foundation of one or more of these modules. And what would happen essentially in an iterative process, you have conversations with governments. They're interested in trying to get some commonality on, for example, researcher access. And then you get the organizations that have already been working on these problems at the table. And if they decide that this makes sense to do it as a module across borders, you make sure that there are multiple governments then you come up with a system that the governments can accept as substantially 
uh, satisfying a requirement under their rules. You mentioned the uh, researcher several times, and I imagine that's one that's always, um, it seems to be, to me, it'd be a little bit of a challenge in regulatory language. And so, you know, where you have similarities of what we understand people are hopefully, you know, looking for in the, they want to look, you know, long-term at the, what's going on in these platforms. Uh, but the, so the purpose of the regulatory language is probably very similar, but then they're not exactly using the same language. So uh, being able to kind of play the same, same game uh, there, like okay, mm-hmm. it says this, but it means that, and then we're all going to agree that that's the ultimate meaning. The words are a little different. And because you mentioned researchers, how are they getting together ahead of time? And are they, are they doing this as one-offs or are they doing, having a good uh, rapport with the different governments to be able to go forward and say, we can build on this? Because I know part of the challenge with privacy is all the different DPAs, the you know, data <laughs> privacy actors that are the wrong acronym there, but um, you know, it, within Europe is yeah. you're not getting the same response. And so you're spending a lot of cycles getting similar, but not always the same, you know, like you don't know if you can move forward. Well, there's been a lot of work done uh, with that requirement under the Digital Services Act. And in fact, there's a group called EDMO, and I apologize for the act. Oh, yeah, no, I remember. But I don't remember what it stands for. Um, That has gone very far in coming up with a recommendation that would include an independent body, an intermediary body to to vet the researchers, to vet the projects, to work with the uh, platforms to ensure that uh, their concerns are met as well. And we basically said, hey, this could be a module. And then what we'd love to see is other countries saying, yeah, we can, we can subscribe to this. Now, the EU has very specific limits if you will, I'm not sure it's quite a limit, but it says, all right, we're going to approve this, but only for the purposes of researchers validating, um, investigating and validating whether or not the platform has in fact complied, has done a good job with uh, its, um, its systems and the like. So there's a purpose tag to that. And because it's a module, because it's a building block, You could also have researchers that want to do other projects, but they wouldn't be done in conjunction with the EU. So there are ways of addressing interests of other countries as well, but yet have fundamentally a common system for the vetting process so that a a researcher is not going to have to go through three or four different types of vetting systems in order to be able to gain access to data in a number of different jurisdictions. That's the idea. So it's, this sounds very um, similar to what we tried just between the EU and the U.S. with the privacy bridge mm-hmm. that got knocked down by Shrums, and then the privacy shield, which got knocked down by Shrums too. And now I, I know we have something else. I don't think they've given it an inanimate object yet. Like I, I said, we should yeah. call it an umbrella, but <laughs> nobody was listening to me. Um, but the idea that, you know, we take it and the whole idea was, you know, for that was so you could do the cross-border data flows really at the enterprise level. And it, you know, because if you were, I don't know, HP or IBM or somebody, you, you, you know, had a lot of HR stuff that wanted to go back and forth, but then we got the NSA engaged and it made some people nervous. I, when I was at the uh, Internet Governance Forum this past year in uh, Ethiopia, it was interesting because we, since we were in Africa and we were in the you know home of the African Union, we were talking about what they're doing in Africa. And they've had a cross-border data 
kind of idea of the same thing of a bridge or, you know, within Africa since 2014, and they can't get that take, they they can't get it past there. And I said, have you guys gone back and looked at the language? Because I imagine since 2014 to 2020, then too, you probably have some things that have changed. And they said, we just, we don't have as much data flow that we're as concerned about because they just don't have as much e-commerce, you know, in that space yet, but they really would like to have it as an issue so they can fix it, the data flow. Of course, the, the whole reason on the on the privacy side was uh, concerned by the Europeans of U.S. government spying on and getting access to the data. Yeah, they have no problem with TikTok. I'm shocked by that. I mean, it just it's, it's, an, it's a non sequitur for me, but okay, I get it. I understand where they were concerned, but then they should also be concerned about the Chinese as far as I'm concerned. So um, you mentioned in some of the examples of groups that have are doing this, and, and one of my favorites is the Digital Trust and Safety Partnership because they are seem to be very good at kind of calling it out early and understanding the problem and getting ahead of the problem. So, uh, and you you noted that they are drafting code of conduct um, as industry members, and to me that seems like a really good example of you know putting very similar minds together on similar problems, but they're not. They're not banned together by geography. They're banned together by the challenges they have in front of them. Um, so, so I know digital trust, the global network initiative. You mentioned that I'm not as I know I've kind of been I've looked at their stuff throughout the past. What are they working on currently? Are they in a similar situation? Well, what the global network initiative does basically, it's a process for auditing members' risk assessments and mitigation efforts in the area of freedom of expression and privacy. And it's ICT companies that are members of this. Uh, It's a voluntary organization, but they're very thorough in the way they and thoughtful in the way that they approach these uh, risk assessments and evaluations with outside independent auditors reviewing them. So it sets up a concept that could be expanded upon, not necessarily by that organization, but used um, in a more expanded form as a uh, module for evaluating, setting standards for those uh, for conducting risk assessments, because there aren't any standards at the moment, and also for for setting standards and protocols for those independent auditors that are going to be doing the audits. So we see that as, once again, something that could be cross-border, even if a country, say the United States as an example, doesn't require such audits um, or risk assessments. Nonetheless, if they are subscribing to it, if they want to join on, they can join on and participate in a meaningful way. You mentioned in, in your notes the international standards bodies like well, – like, um, uh, FIDRA, which is in the financial industry, but it, really the international accounting standards, I guess, spoke to me yeah. because we're all so used to that, right? We're in, and we realize we don't have to go through and reinvent the, you know, the process every time. So that's, this all seems to be making some amazing sense. So where are you in the module process right now? Okay. I'm glad you mentioned some of these uh, down-to-earth systems that are really modules when you think about their construct. And that's what we're trying to accomplish within the digital regulatory space. Uh, Where we are right now, basically, is we've been having a lot of discussions um, with a number of regulators, uh, as well as with the various organizations, uh, both industry and civil society, 
to see what could be generated. We've talked with Ofcom, the UK regulator, as you know, that's drafting the rules under the online safety bill. Um, they are very interested in this. And in fact, they have set up together with, I think it was Australia uh, and Fiji, and there may be another country, um, a, a, an e-safety group of regulators that are going to be looking at best practices. And it's those kinds of groups of regulators that are prime for um, working on a module together because it'll, it'll already be cross-border. So that's one piece of this. We've also had conversations with regulators in New Zealand. They're considering updating their framework. They would love to see it because they're a small country with limited resources. They benefit from collaborating with other governments on, on some of the digital rules. Of course, we've been speaking with the European Commission. The task that they have in front of them is enormous. It must stand up an office of regulators, which it doesn't currently have, and at the same time draft a multitude of delegated acts to implement the complex provisions of the DSA. It, too, would benefit if it would be willing to do it. Uh, from multi-stakeholder modules as essentially helping them to fulfill some of the requirements under the DSA and move it along more rapidly. Um, so those are some of the uh, Canada. We've been talking also with some of the regulators in Canada to see what the level of interest is and how we can bring all of this together. What, what's so interesting is, um, again, I'm, I'm looking at some of the notes that you sent me, that you, you refer to this as the disconnect of the Internet, which is global, with the laws that govern it, which are local, which we usually uh, end up doing a trade agreement with, sometimes a bilateral or a multilateral. But the idea of making sure that we get all the parties engaged, as you and I have been working a long time in the Internet governance forum space and you know different elements of that, making sure that we don't we don't start to go down the fragmentation road that we're all very, very concerned about is really key. So where are you as far as now in the process that anyone is, there's somebody who wants to get engaged in this or learn more about it. Can you tell us kind of where, where we can best go to find out what's going on and, and get more engagement for you? Uh, they can contact me. I can give you my email address. It's ness at susanness.com. And I'd be happy to respond. Uh, we're particularly looking to civil society, industry, as well as governments that, that understand the concept, that get it, and they want to pursue this further. Well, and we will put some of the information that you sent to me in the show notes as well, so people can get a, a better idea right. of where to engage. Susan, I want to wish you the best of luck. I think this is a great idea. I hope to see you around a lot of the places that we end up in, in spaces together, but anything we can do to be helpful as we're working through this, I think it's going to be a really interesting area to watch. So thank you for well, being a guest today on Explain to Shane. And thank you so much, Shane, for the opportunity to talk about modularity. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of Explain to Shane. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred listening platform. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues to tune in. We'll see you on the next episode of Explain to Shane.